Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. It's been a game of waiting this week, as we are waiting for a big announcement from CBS about their short treks coming up this fall. We're also waiting for details about new Star Trek shows, and we're waiting to find out if there's going to be a Star Trek IV. Sometimes being a Star Trek fan is like being in line at the DMV but with aliens in the future. Well, we're pushing you to the front of the line with some good news this week about Star Trek Discovery. Plus, The Man Trap, as everyone knows, was the first broadcast episode of Star Trek, but The Cage, the unaired pilot of the original series, was Desilu's first attempt at Star Trek, and the footage from that pilot was reused later for the two-part episode, The Menagerie. The Cage isn't a bad episode by any stretch. You can certainly see the skeleton of the kind of show that Star Trek would become. And there's one character from The Cage that would ensnare viewers and prove to be an iconic emblem for the new series, even until today. No, it's not Mr. Spock. No, it's not Mr. Sulu. I'm talking about The Green Girl. And I've got a review of the documentary of the same name about her coming up a little later in the show. And now, without further ado... And as long as Mr. Wilson is ready... I am ready to face any challenges that might be foolish enough to face me. Then let's get underway. Well, the news, as it turns out, was worth waiting for. CBS announced today on their Star Trek CBS Twitter account the release dates for their upcoming short treks. That is, their series of short, 10 to 15 minute long films set in the world of Star Trek Discovery. The first one comes out on October 4th, which... That's only two weeks away. Are you freaking kidding me? Calm down, everybody calm down. And Tilly, you better gear up because the October 4th short trek will be Runaway and will focus on the character of Tilly. Here's a synopsis. Uh, in fact, I've got synopsis. I've got, I've got synopsi. I've got summaries for all four episodes. So soft spoiler warning if you don't want to know anything at all. The synopsis for Runaway is... On board the USS Discovery, Ensign Tilly encounters an unexpected visitor in need of help. However, this unlikely pair may have more in common than meets the eye. And you can see the presumed visitor, a female-looking alien, in the very short teaser video that CBS provided. It's on YouTube. That episode will be written by Jenny Lumet and Alex Kurtzman, a.k.a. The Kurtz. Lumet has a familiar name, and she should, because she's the daughter of famed writer and director Sidney Lumet. The Kurtz is... Someone's kid, if they claim him, I guess. I kid, I kid. Lumet got her start as an actress, and she previously wrote the 2008 movie Rachel Getting Married, which has, I think, the most emotionally significant dishwasher-loading scene in cinema. Take my word on that. She is also credited as a writer on 2017's The Mummy. So... (laughs) Kurtz! Next up is Calypso, which drops on November 8th. Here's the synopsis. After waking up in an unfamiliar sickbay, Kraft, played by Aldous Hodge, finds himself on board a deserted ship, and his only companion and hope for survival is an AI computer interface. That's neat. I'm looking forward to this one, because it sounds spooky, and I love space horror, and Aldous Hodge is the real deal. He's been floating around for a while on TV and in a few films, but I hope he becomes part of the show proper. 
This episode is written by Michael Shabon. Yep, that Michael Shabon. And Sean Cochran, a staff writer for Discovery. No relation to Zephron Cochran. Where is he? I mean, this is in the past, their past, our future. Does his kid look like Farmer Hoggett? What are his thoughts on Ubi Doobie? We're going to need to know this real soon. The third short trek to be released will be The Brightest Star, and that'll be released on December 6th. Here's the summary. Before he was the first Kelpian to join Starfleet, Saru lived a simple life on his home planet of Kaminar with his father and sister. Young Saru, full of ingenuity and a level of curiosity uncommon among his people, yearns to find out what lies beyond his village, leading him on an unexpected path. And this one sounds interesting. I get a I get a yesteryear kind of vibe from it, and it'll be cool to finally see the Kelpian homeworld. Um, it's easy to write in a pilot script or, or a show bible. Oh, they come from a planet and their species is prey. But the kind of ideas and stories that you develop from just writing a little line like that and developing it into an entire society. I mean, that's that's the real prize, you know, that I'm after as a sci-fi fan, and that's hopefully what we'll get here. Uh, one note, it is young Saru. So does this mean no Doug Jones? That would, that would hurt, but who knows? I mean, LeBron James was like six, four, six, five in like fifth grade. So I don't know, maybe Saru's, he's a tall guy. (laughs) Maybe he's an early bloomer. This episode will be written by Byung-Yong Kim and Erica Lippolt and directed by Douglas Arniokoski, who all worked on the first season of Discovery. So this should be right in the pocket for the show. And last but not least, we have The Escape Artist, which drops on January 3rd. Harry Mudd, back to his old tricks of stealing and double-dealing, finds himself in a precarious position aboard a hostile ship, just in time to try out his latest con. This episode is written by Mike McMahon, who is a writer for Rick and Morty, and just to keep score, he is not who I predicted the Rick and Morty writer was going to be a few weeks ago, so never mind, move along, move along. He's also the writer behind the Twitter handle TNG Season 8 at TNG underscore S8, which I don't think is updating regularly anymore, but it was for a while, uh, a couple years back, and it's extremely funny. (laughs) You should check it out. Uh, It's Twitter humor in the vein of Riker Googling and such. Rain Wilson is back as Mud, and he's directing this time around, so I'm I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, We'll get some of that much-needed Trek humor, I hope. If you want to see the trailer for the short treks, I'll include a link in our show notes to find it. What do you think? Are you excited for short treks? How do you think that they'll fit in with the upcoming season two of Discovery? Let us know all these things on our social media, on Facebook at Enterprising Individuals, or on Twitter at at EISTpod. And you can join us in the Enterprising Individuals discussion group on Facebook at Enterprising Interlocutions, where we'll be dissecting everything we know about short treks until they drop this fall. And we, of course, will be covering those short films on our Star Trek Discovery recap show, Discoverage, I've already got a great lineup of guests for those shows, and we're really looking forward to what's in store for Star Trek Discovery in Season 2 and beyond. In other Trek news, we've got an update on our coverage of the whole CBS, Viacom, Les Moonves, Quagmire thing. Uh, Les Moonves is out at CBS. The former CEO stepped down from his position on September 9th in the wake of allegations of sexual misconduct and assault made by multiple women. CBS announced that Moonves would not receive any of his reported $120 million exit compensation pending the results of the independent investigation into the allegations. And they've also appointed six new board members for the network to replace the six who were stepping down after Moonves' departure. Chief Operating Officer Joseph Ianello has been appointed as acting CEO, and any talk of merger between CBS and Viacom has been shelved for the foreseeable future. 
CBS has also pledged to donate $20 million to organizations that support the Me Too movement and workplace equality for women, and that $20 million would be deducted from any severance paid to Moonves. Wow. This is not how I expected this merger saga to end, uh, or at least to go on hold after we've tracked it for so long. But after everything bad that's happened, this is the best good thing that could happen. Uh, Moonves's wife, Julie Chen, has also left her job as a co-host of The View, which makes sense, I guess, I suppose. Well, we'll keep watching this story, and when we know more, you'll hear about it. On to better news. We've been talking recently on the show about the fact that Star Trek is visionary science fiction, but sometimes it's a lot more fiction than science. However, the Dharma Planet Survey, a project to search for planets outside of our solar system, uh, or exoplanets as they're known, has found a planet right where Gene Roddenberry said it would be. The planet orbits a star 16 light years from Earth that we call HD 26965, or 40 Ariadne A. The exoplanet discovered orbiting 40 Ariadne doesn't have a name yet, but a certain first officer of the USS Enterprise might have a suggestion. Vulcan. Early in the life of Star Trek, it didn't really matter where Vulcan or the Klingon homeworld was, or the Romulan homeworld, as long as it's on the other side of the neutral zone. None of that mattered about where it was on a star chart. But Gene Roddenberry later maintained that 40 Ariadne A would be the star that Vulcan circled. It made sense. It was near to Earth on a galactic scale, and Ariadne was part of a triple star system. Vulcan had been, of course, depicted as having multiple suns in the motion picture. It turns out that Gene was more right than he could have imagined, or even knew, really. Uh, the exoplanet that was recently discovered is of a type often described as a super-Earth. That is, planets that are much larger than our own, but are still terrestrial, that is, rocky, and with similar properties. The new planet has a radius twice the size of Earth and has nearly nine times the mass, which means a lot more gravity, but hey, Vulcans are stronger than humans. The planet orbits its sun within the star's habitable zone, but barely with an orbital period or year of just 42 days. But Vulcan is hot too. I think we've got a winner here. I'll plug in the jukebox, you crack open the good stuff, but there's just one more thing we have to check. Does it have a moon? Because as we all know, Vulcan has no moon. And while we're on the subject of Spock, let's bring his brain into the conversation. Spock's brain, the first episode of the third season of Star Trek, the original series, premiered 50 years ago today. It would, of course, go on to be lauded as the best example of the show really getting lost up its own exhaust port. Seriously, I, I love, love, love Spock's brain. Uh, but I've heard it called every horrible thing you can think of. I've defended it mightily, like an iMorg defending the controller, but I realize it's not good. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's the perfect episode to start off the third season of Trek because it lets you know right away that you should buckle up. You're in for some pain and delight. Anyway, I like it, and who knows, maybe we'll cover it on the show someday, if I can convince someone to talk about it with me. It might be a long wait. Star Trek turned 52 years old recently as it first hit the airwaves on September 8th of 1966. Technically, if you want to get pedantic, it hit the airwaves on September 6th as it premiered on CTV in Canada before airing in the U.S., but who's counting? And it all got started with The Man Trap, the fifth produced but first aired episode of the original series. But before that, there was, of course, The Cage. The first pilot developed for Star Trek would have introduced the world to Captain Christopher Pike, commanding the Starship Enterprise in the year 2254 
11 years before we would join the adventures of the Enterprise under Captain Kirk. NBC, though impressed by the look and scope of the pilot, rejected it as too cerebral. But then they did the unthinkable. They commissioned a second pilot, and that show, where no man has gone before, was bought by the network. Midway through the first season of the show, the production at Desilu found themselves behind on scripts, and the entire show would have to shut down unless a solution was found. But one was The Cage. Roddenberry had the idea to use the existing pilot footage and to write a frame story that would put our current crew in the action, using Spock's appearance in the first pilot as the tether between stories. The result was The Menagerie, the first and only two-part episode of the original series, and an episode that helped to deepen the world-building of the nascent show. The Cage, like most pilots that aren't picked up, had been headed for the trash heap of pop culture history, and instead, it became part of the ever-expanding canon of the Trek universe. One of the most enduring elements of the cage is Vina, the girl that the Talosians use to try and entice Captain Pike to remain in their menagerie. Over the course of the episode, Vina appears in many guises, but perhaps none so memorable or iconic as the Green Orion dancing girl during one of the more enticing illusions that Pike experiences. Orion slave girls, green women, have become shorthand for sensuality in Trek, and the trope can be recognized by even casual Star Trek and sci-fi fans. But unbeknownst to many people is that the actress behind the Orion slave girl, Susan Oliver, was one of the most recognizable actresses of the 60s and 70s, and her life and career are explored in the 2013 documentary, The Green Girl. This documentary was written and directed by George Pappy, and it was kickstarted uh, on the internet a few years ago. And I wasn't sure what to expect when I tuned into it. Um, I had known about Susan Oliver. Uh, actually, we covered the cage in our stellar commentaries. Here's a little plug available at patreon.com forward slash EIST pod. And so I uh, know I'd known that she was a she died early, um, that she was an actress who was in many things and that uh, she was also a pilot, an aviatrix, and she had flown solo across the Atlantic, uh, the second woman ever to do so, which was fascinating, but I didn't know anything else about her. Uh, and when you get this DVD, like immediately on the cover, it's got uh, like 25 different pictures of women, and they're all her. <laughs> Every single photo is her in some other guise. Um, she was, of course, you know, very beautiful and she was very um, distinctive looking. Um, she had very, you know, razor sharp cheekbones and these like amazing blue eyes. But she could play all kinds of different roles and did over the course of her career. And much of I don't know how they got the rights to this, but like much of the things that you see in the documentary are clips from the different shows and films that she's done. And they kind of provide context to what's going on. Uh, the rest of it is interviews with family members and people that worked with her in the industry and so on and so forth. If you don't immediately recognize the name, that's fine. But if you are a fan of films or TV of the 60s and 70s and even 80s, uh, you've seen her before. And as far as her TV career goes, she was on uh, Wagon Train. She was on The Untouchables, Bonanza. She was on The Twilight Zone. You know, she was on Rawhide, Route 66, Sun 77 Sunset Strip, uh, on and on and on. And of course, that's all before she appeared on Star Trek in 64. And she would go on to appear on Man From U.N.C.L.E., Gomer Pyle, Wild Wild West, Mannix, uh, also at Desilu. I mean, I haven't even left the 60s yet uh, in terms of the things that she's been on, uh, but I will not read out her entire uh, IMDb page. And she was just known as somebody who 
we need a part. Um, it's a tough part. <laughs> in fact, going through the documentary, uh, you see that she plays a lot of, I mean, she, easily, she's pretty, right? So she could have easily just played young girl, love interest, so on and so forth. You know, her very first role was in a film called The Green-Eyed Blonde, uh, which was written by Dalton Trumbo. And she, you know, plays a young girl uh, who doesn't have green eyes. <laughs> she's, I think she would, her agent like gave her the script and she's like, well, I don't have green eyes. And he's like, it's in black and white. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but uh, she just became known as a very reliable actress. And of course, in those days, you they didn't worry about continuity. So if she got in with a studio or like a show or production, they'd just go, bring her back. She did like some shows she did like four different times um, uh, in, in repeat roles. And so that seems all well and good, but she had a lot of, you know, stumbling bot blocks and uh, obstacles in her way. Um, she originally, um, she was raised uh, by a single mother uh, who she was very close with. And the movie paints an interesting portrait of her mother, who, of course, was not alive to defend herself. But many of her friends and family, Susan's, um, cited her as probably more of a bad influence than a good influence in her life as being somewhat overbearing. And Susan herself, you get a picture of her in the documentary as someone who is very talented, uh, is very capable, knew exactly what she wanted, and she's one of those uh, women out of time, uh, if you will. Somebody who knew her worth, she didn't feel tied down to things, even when in Hollywood in the 50s, you signed a contract and you were absolutely tied down, you know, professionally. Uh, and she actually um, basically broke her own contract with the first uh, studio that she was with. Um, I think it was MGM, um, but don't quote me on that. And she basically like was doing theater. She moved to L.A., uh, got this contract and just kind of didn't like the part she was getting. She didn't like what was going on. And so she just stopped working. And that kind of got her blacklisted for for a while. Um, you know, nobody would work with her. But she quickly overcame that um, by kind of moving to TV. And in this day of TV in the 60s, they're just making shows, making shows. And like I said, she had a um, reputation as being very and being very reliable. Something else that limited her career options was she was, in addition to one day becoming a pilot, uh, was in a um, a near plane uh, accident. Um, she was flying from uh, a tr on a transatlantic flight in 1959 on a Boeing 707, and there was it was one of those events where uh, there was a s sudden drop in altitude. They went from like 35,000 feet to like 6,000 feet, and the plane. In the documentary, they talk about how the pilot. I guess he was getting some coffee or something, but he had to like, he was like climbing on the seats, like to get back to uh, the cockpit. Uh, and she was, uh, they were okay, clearly, uh, but it was also the same day that Buddy Holly died uh, in his plane crash. And so that was kind of it for a while for her. Uh, at the, in 59, uh, she refused to take any job that required her to fly, which is going to severely limit you if you are doing the. New York to L.A. thing or if you're shooting on uh, location. The one ex exception that she made was uh, when she auditioned for Butterfield 8, which she appeared in with Liz Taylor uh, because that was a big deal. But that was pretty much it uh, for that. Uh, later, though, um, she was introduced uh, to personal flying by Hal Fishman, the TV newsman from the uh, L.A. area and also a uh, amateur um, enthusiast, uh, enthusiast for uh, aviation himself. 
and she just fell in love with flying. She also <laughs> it says in the documentary that she was hypnotized uh, to try to get over her fear of flying, and apparently it worked in spades because she fell in love with flying and started. Uh, she went, got her pilot's license uh, immediately, which then, of course, led to her uh, her flight in 1967 when she flew uh, her single-engine aircraft across the Atlantic Ocean uh, by herself. She was the fourth woman to do it uh, total and the second to do it from New York City. Um, not to throw any aspersions on uh, the big AE, Amelia Earhart, but Amelia Earhart flew from Newfoundland and Susan flew from New York, which was, of course, a much longer flight. She actually planned to go all the way to Moscow, um, but Moscow denied her permission to enter their airspace. And she pub- uh, published her own book uh, about her experiences doing that called Odyssey. Back to her acting career. I mentioned before that she was dissatisfied with the role of the ingenue, but it worked out. You see in her credits that she plays a lot of like junkies, which I guess are really, I, I need it, man. Just give me a little, give me, give me a little taste, man. Uh, popular role in the 60s uh, on TV and cop shows uh, and in the 70s. And she got a lot of those roles because, you know, she could act like she was extremely versatile. She was really good. She could make she wouldn't do what I just did. <laughs> she could, you know, give that character depth. You can understand that character. And for somebody who, like I said before, was, you know, trafficking on her looks because she's an actress. Uh, she wasn't afraid to look ugly. I mean, she never really did, but not she wasn't afraid to look strung out. And so uh, she got a lot of roles uh, that required her to kind of look strung out sometimes. Even in the midst of her success in the 60s and 70s on TV, she was still running into setbacks and roadblocks. She still had that, she didn't want to settle down. She had that sort of wanderlust, that bug. And one of her acquaintances in Hollywood, uh, Lee Merriweather, of course, known as Catwoman on the Batman show in the 60s, uh, talks about how she didn't want to do a series because she didn't want to be tied down to it. Um, she liked playing different roles. She liked being on a lot of different shows. And she didn't want to play some character day in and day out on a show. And her agents, uh, according to the documentary, retaliated against her because her get taking a series would have meant big money for them, of course. And so she would get movie offers and she would get... Uh, scripts and parts sent to her and they wouldn't pass them on to her they just turn them down without asking her as uh, retaliation which is like seems like shooting yourself in the foot but what do i know the documentary also talks about her personal life she never married and she never had a child and the documentary is open enough to suggest that she might have been gay she had a lot of boyfriends um and uh, (laughs) a lot of like a lot of different kinds of boyfriends, too. Like, she uh, dated a lot of baseball players, I guess. Uh, which, I don't know, why not? Uh, she was uh, dating Sandy Koufax for a long time. Uh, and they were going to get engaged. But apparently he dumped her because she wasn't Jewish enough. But one of her friends in the documentary says, you don't dump Susan Oliver because <laughs> she's not Jewish enough. I mean, come on, it's Susan Oliver. Uh, she apparently dated Rosie Greer as well, or at least went on some dates with him. And her friends are, you know, they just repeat that same refrain that she kind of knew what she want, wanted and she wasn't going to settle for, uh, you know, something that she didn't want. Um, apparently, she at one point tried to um, get a donor to have a child on her own and the situation didn't work out. And so she, if she couldn't have it the way that she wanted it, she wasn't going to have it at all. And that was kind of that's kind of the uh, refrain that you get, you know, kind of her philosophy that you get from the film. 
Um, her professional life uh, took another dip uh, later on in the 70s. Um, she'd been doing pretty well, but money began to be a problem. You have to remember that there were no real residuals. Uh, if you look at um, many of the actors from Star Trek, the original series, you know, you don't get any money. You get paid for the work you do. And it isn't like now where you get some check if something is um, sold into syndication or ends up in a rerun or something like that. So she missed out on a lot of that money, but she didn't let it stop her. And she tried to reach out more and she entered the um, a, a director's workshop uh, at AFI for female directors in the early 70s with uh, Lily Tomlin was in it, uh, Ellen Burstyn as well. And she produced a film out of that, which I want to track this down. I haven't seen it. It's called Cowboy-san. And it's kind of a, a black exploitation meets chop kind of film about a, um, like a samurai cowboy uh, type thing. I mean, it sounds, it sounds uh, of its time, which is to say probably slightly problematic, uh, but a lot of the people who they talked to in the documentary, uh, people of all races, uh, were people that were in the film and friends of hers. So I'm going to check that out someday. Uh, she ended up on Days of Our Lives after that. Uh, so she did end up doing a series just to get a little money. And, you know, things uh, got worse after that. Um, she tried to branch out into directing after uh, her work at AFI. And she met a lot of resistance. She directed an episode of MASH in 1982, which was praised um, for her work. And she directed an episode of Trapper John, MD, after that. And, you know, I always used to like Trapper John, MD. But uh, apparently the star of Trapper John, MD, Pernell Roberts, was kind of a jerk. Uh, and he basically uh, he didn't like working with her. And apparently the crew uh, didn't like working with her either. And the movie is even-handed about it. Um, they say that she was a young and somewhat inexperienced director. But they also talk about the sexism that went on back then. And if you can't get... If the crew decides they don't like you, they're going to cause problems. There's going to be overruns. It's going to take a long time. You know, you're not going to get what you're looking for. And ultimately, um, the production company said that they didn't like working for her. And as they say in the doc, you're only as good as your last job. So that was pretty much it. She didn't get to direct after that, which is too bad. And after that, her health uh, started to deteriorate. She got colon cancer, which later metastasized uh, to her lungs. And that's what uh, ultimately claimed her in 1990 at the age of 58. Uh, way too soon. Um, and actually, some interesting facts from the documentary, she worked with Jerry Lewis in 1964, I believe, on The Disorderly Orderly, uh, and they had remained friends throughout her life, and he um, actually offered to help pay for her medical expenses when she had cancer, and she refused because she was going to do it her way. And that's, that's, the kind, that's what defined her life and made her such an interesting person. So I would say if you were interested in the programs of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, which you're listening to a Star Trek podcast, so it's a safe bet. You should check this out. If you like Orion Slave Girls, you should check this out. Uh, it's a pretty good documentary. Uh, it's a little, you know, it's a little threadbare uh, or just bare bones, I suppose. Um, you know, it wasn't very expensive. There aren't a lot of uh, fancy graphics and things like that, but you get these really interesting insights from people who who knew her directly um, from her family and you get to see a lot of great clips like after having seen this I remembered oh yeah I did see her in the Twilight Zone I did see her on Bonanza 
and there's some, there were some other shows that um, I want to check out now that I, I had known that she was in, and some movies as well. So the documentary is called The Green Girl. You can find it at thegreengirlmovie.com. Check it out. If The Green Girl sounds enticing to you, you can buy it on Amazon. I've got a link in the show notes where you can find it. If you click on that link or on our Amazon banner at enterprisingindividuals.com, you end up right on Amazon, and whatever you purchase there, a small percentage of that transaction comes back to us at no extra cost to you and helps keep the warp core lit here. And this counts for anything. It's not just Star Trek stuff. You can actually bookmark that link, and when you click through to Amazon, whatever you buy, the same deal applies. And maybe you're saying, I am the biggest Susan Oliver fan ever. Thank you very much. I've got every scrap of media she's ever been in. I've got the green-eyed blonde on VTR, to which I would say, do you have Susan's book, Odyssey, A Daring Transatlantic Journey? Because it's out of print and used ones go for like 200 bucks. So, you know, I just, I just want to borrow it. I'll treat it nice, I swear. But I'd also say, if you like what you hear on Enterprising Individuals and you want to support the show, why not head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISDpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show, and for a small monthly fee, you can get access to our exclusive subscriber content, like our live shows, including our live show with Melinda Snodgrass at Convergence 2018, my DS9 rewatch recaps, our new episode commentaries, including our commentary for Susan Oliver's episode, The Cage, and the show merchandise and more. Just head to patreon.com forward slash EISDpod. Become a member of the crew today. Anyone can join us. We're not picky. Just go to patreon.com forward slash EISDpod. And as always, anything you can contribute to the show will be appreciated. will help keep us flying. Thanks. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts and make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, write us a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. If you're not an Apple Podcasts user, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we would be eternally grateful. Next week on Enterprising Individuals. The mission of the USS Enterprise is to seek out new life and new civilizations. But why? To find adventure? To get more dilithium? To meet sexy slave girls? Beyond those understandable goals, the mission of Starfleet is a mission of discovery. The belief that knowing more things, meeting more people, will make us better. Learning someone else's stories deepens us and changes us for the better. The explorer's life can be a lonely one, but through a chance encounter with an alien probe, Captain Picard experiences the power of family and community and learns the true purpose of his mission of discovery. Writer and editor Sarah Lynn Mishner joins the show next week to talk about the best episode of Star Trek The Next Generation and possibly of the entire franchise. It's The Inner Light, next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying live long and prosper. Yeah.